We are in the book of 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, in the midst of the section, chapter 2, 11 through chapter 4, 11, that's given over to how to live for Christ in a hostile environment, Peter plops down this refocusing of our attention on the glory and grandeur and greatness of Christ. And so we started this passage last week. We'll continue it this week. But this is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So as, as I look at First Peter, let me give you two key words. Uh, the key words are this, prepare and hope. So first of all, prepare. The, the, the concept of prepare is that Peter is addressing a group of people that are going through what we call a soft persecution. They're being ostracized socially. They're being lampooned by their contemporaries for believing in the resurrection of a dead man named Jesus. But two to three years after this, a major persecution would fall on the church. And here's the background. The emperor at this time is a man named Nero. Nero became the emperor, Roman emperor at the age of 16. And in his teen years, his going into his teen years and up until he was 21, he was mentored by a very wise man named Seneca. If you've read ancient history, you know Seneca, who was a famous philosopher and Stoic. Seneca had had to flee for his life a few years before this because he opposed a wicked emperor named Caligula. And here Seneca has mentored and tutored and loved and encouraged Nero. And while Seneca walked with Nero, it went very, very well. By the age of 21, Nero married a woman who turned out to be a very wicked woman. And she told Nero, you need to get rid of Seneca. He's holding you back. And so he exiled Seneca and ordered Seneca, who at age of 69, he said, I'm going to exile you and I'm going to command you to commit suicide, which he did. In his 21st year, he also murdered his own mama. So he was a wicked man. Five years later, at the age of 26, three years after this epistle was written, we think, Nero burned 60% of Rome to the ground. He burnt the lower income housing. He burnt things that weren't really that valuable because he wanted to build great mansions and great architectural structures. He wanted to be known as an architectural genius. And so in the aftermath of the burning of Rome, Nero and his henchmen circulated the rumor that the Christians did this. The Christians did this. So in the, in the aftermath of that, 
there is a persecution that came upon the church. And so there's this preparation. That's why chapter 1, verse 13 says, therefore, based upon the internal love of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, based upon the fact that you received an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, therefore, because you have a living hope, therefore, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Prepare. Be Prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Think clearly. Think with deep insight. Prepare. So this, this book is all about preparation. But the second thing about this book is that Peter is called the theologian of hope. Theologian of hope. In the same verse, the second theme, therefore prepare your minds for action, be sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace of God to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ when Christ comes again. I fix your hope completely on this hope. So preparation, hope, preparation, hope. Behold the glory of heaven because of the reality of Christ. Now, we just returned from Walt Disney World Friday night. And a few months ago, my wife who has a very significant birthday the last few weeks ago, I wanted to do something special, so I was told by a friend that there's a major sale on going to Europe for a very cheap, and I said, we can go to Paris or Rome really, really inexpensively. I can take you to Paris or Rome. You can be with your beloved for your significant birthday. Which do you want to do? And she said, none of the above. I want to take our grandkids to Disney World. And so we did. That was not my idea. Um, and it also underscored the fact that I am now on the JV team. I'm an afterthought. So we went to Disney World, four grandkids. My son-in-law and daughter went and took their two. We took two from the West Coast. And it was really a glorious time. Uh, I take back all the bad things I thought, didn't really say, but the bad things I thought. But it was, it was really good. But a few things I noticed about Disney World, too, are extraneous to what I want to say, but... I'm gonna, First of all, I saw a lot of special needs children. And I'm so glad for the children that worship here at 9.30 or 9 o'clock and 10.45 who are special needs. And that class, the friends class, makes the heart of Jesus very happy. My admiration for the parents of special needs children has no limit. It's amazing what they do. The second thing that I noticed was uh, at least 15 or 20 couples wearing buttons that said 55 years of marriage or 60 years of marriage. And they were there either in motorized vehicles or kind of stumbling around, going from place to place by themselves. And I thought, man, I admire their pluck and their courage to be here. And, and just, but I got to tell you, if, if we make it 21 more years, I am not going to go to Disney World for my 60th anniversary. <laughs> that's just not going to happen. But I'm, that's, that's up to them. But the other thing I noticed was all these t-shirts that said, best day ever. Best, one shirt said most expensive day ever, which is true, but best day ever. And I, I was thinking about that. You know, if you live in a world and you believe your best day is at a theme park or at a sporting event or at a giant barbecue or Highland Festival, whatever. 
And that's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end of what you want to do. I, I believe that you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be disappointed because every day we live in a fallen world, a less than perfect world, and every day is going to be filled with sometimes a few joys and a lot of disappointments, sometimes a lot of joys and just a few disappointments. But, but, but if, if you think this is the best day ever, then you're going to be demanding of those around you in your friendship circle, in your job, in your marriage, in your parenting, uh, in your hobbies. You're going to be demanding uh, because it's all about now. But if you, if you believe, like Peter says, that this is a beautiful world, but it's a fallen world, and we're to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us, then we can embrace life and say that the most wonderful day on this earth is, a, is, is an appetizer for the real event. The most wonderful experience on this earth is a dress rehearsal for the real thing in heaven, which will be glorious beyond description and word. That's why Peter says this church is going to persecution. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you, the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you demand everything right now, you're going to be disappointed. But if you go through life with an embrace and a joy and a likeness, because eternity awaits, I think you're going to be easy to live with. I think you're going to be joyful. So the last night we're there, we want to make the most of the three days we're in the park and the rain was supposed to go away. So we're in the Epcot Center, but instead of going away, the rain came in in sheets. And uh, we're trying to walk around and enjoy it. And we're soaked to the bone and it's just pouring rain. We have umbrellas and we, we have the whole nine yards. And we're walking around you know, all this. And as we're pushing, as I'm pushing the stroller, uh, I, I look to my right and I notice a groom in his tux and a bride in her wedding dress. And they're holding hands and they are being pelted with rain. There's no umbrella and they're arguing. And I'm going, oh my soul. This is their wedding day and they're going to their accommodations and it's just really bad. And my wife and I looked at each other and went, oh my, this is not good. There's a dark side in my spirit. I just, and I really want to look at them and say, best day ever? You know? Um, <laughs> and, the, and the good side of me want to say, hey, I've had some of those days hanging there. It will get better if you follow Jesus. But I, I didn't do any one of the above because I, I feared for my life. But that's beside the point. But, but, but so, so I'm, what I want to argue for this morning from the from from First Peter is that there should be real and substantial change as we walk with the Lord. Real and substantial change. Listen, listen to First Peter chapter one. He says this uh, verse sixteen and following. He says, "As obedient children, verse fourteen, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance." But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So I look at this and say, we're called to be people of absolute purity. We're to resemble the character of the living God and the way we live. And then he talks about the Father who will judge us and be careful how you live. And so real and substantial change. But then I turn to chapter 2, which is very interesting to me. Chapter 2 says, verse 1, Therefore get rid of all malice. Malice just is general wickedness. Malice and guile and hypocrisy, which means trying to appear to be something that you're really not and trying to fool people. 
And envy, which means that you, you want what somebody has, and if you can't want it, you hate them for having it. And slander, which means that when somebody is unjustly criticized in your presence, either you keep quiet or you do it yourself. And Peter says, just get rid of these things. And I say, wait, wait, wait a minute. He's writing to believers. What is he saying? Here's what he's saying. He's saying that we will deal with these sinful issues and inclinations to the day we die. That we just will. So, so you've got to get rid of them. You've got to progressively get rid of them. You've got to get rid of them. How do you get rid of them? Listen, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow up in your salvation because you've tasted that the Lord is good. So, so we need to taste Taste the goodness of the Lord. Taste the majesty of Christ. Taste the mercy of the shepherd king. Taste the goodness of the Lord. And how do you taste it? You, you, you drink in, you think through the scripture. Like a newborn babe, you long for the pure milk of the word. You hit the button that gives you fresh energy from the risen Christ, the risen Jesus. You hit it. You hit it. So last week I was talking to a family in our church, a wonderful family, and they have a son uh, who is a senior in college. And they told me that their son, who's very bright, um, had just completed a 100-mile race. And I thought, hmm, he may be academically smart, but when it comes to intuitive common sense, maybe not so much, you know. And uh, I thought, that's, that's, that is not on my bucket list, a 100-mile race at all. I don't like to ride 100 miles, much less run 100 miles. But I thought, how do you run a distance race? Whether some of you ran a 13-mile race yesterday or a marathon, 26.2 or 100. This is the way you run it. You make sure that there is a water station every two miles or every mile. And if you run 100 miles, you make sure that those stations also have some protein-energizing foods to eat to buoy your physical body and to let you complete. So, so as you're running the race of life and, and you hit the speed bumps, you're always hitting the button, hitting the, hitting the nutrition button, which is to understand the greatness and the majesty of Jesus. Like, like newborn babes. How, how do you get rid of these things? How do you get rid of the dark side that all of us struggle with? You, you continue to run to the Christ. You continually see the glory of Jesus. You, you continually go to him you continue to glory in the grace because chapter one says, therefore, referring to verse 23, I believe this says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So you glory in the majesty and the grace and the goodness of Christ. Real and substantial change that's not perfect, but it's growing. So let's go to the, to the passage now. Once again, he plops down in this section of how to live in a hostile world this majestic statement about the work of Christ. And he speaks of Christ's triumph, his authority, and it's a call to obedience. So we'll see those things this morning. His triumph, authority, call to obedience. First of all, the triumph of Christ, verse 18. He says, for Christ also suffered for sins, the just for the unjust once that he might bring us to God put to death in the flesh made alive in the spirit 
the death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, resurrected with a fleshly body, a real body, a real Christ. And then he says in verse 22, he says, this is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Behold the triumph of Christ. Behold the glory and the victory of the cross. My favorite Puritan was a man who died in 1688. His name was John Owen. And John Owen, in volume 10 of his collected work of 16 volumes, has a book that's in volume 10, and it goes by this title. It's a very famous book. It's called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. Boom. The title is the thesis. The death, the fear of death, the craven horror of death, the dark, unknowable existential anguish of death is wiped away by the death of Christ. Death is too hard. It's a long passage for many of us. But the, the, the anguish of separation and the unknown and the void and the what ifs is wiped away by the cross of Jesus, our sin bearer, who rose victorious over the tomb, ascended into heaven and has poured out the Holy Spirit. The death of death and the death of Christ. Behold, the triumph of Christ. In, in Hebrews chapter 2, it says this, Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, death has been Wiped out, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, because of the resurrected Christ, O grave, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Behold the triumph of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, John has a vision of the resurrected Christ. And it says this, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one, I died and behold, I am alive forever and I have the keys of death and Hades. The Christ who is alive, the triumph of the cross, the triumph of the empty tomb, the ascended Christ sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, proclaiming it's finished, it's done once and for all. And the second thing in this passage is the authority of Christ. Verse 22 says this, He's gone to heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The angels, authorities, and powers is code language for a hierarchy of angels or demons, and they're all under the authority of Christ. Christ the victor is now sovereign king. In Ephesians 1, same concept, and verse 20 and 21 says this, that he worked this in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Christ has all authority. And we walk, walk under that banner. So I, I'm saying this, as I read this passage, I get energized to think, Holy Spirit, change me. Change me, work in me, show me 
The passage that we saw in the video from South Asia, Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go you therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've taught you. And I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And I say, church, do you see the authority of Jesus in your life to change you, to work in you? See, when the, when the king or the captain or the general is absent from the field, there is sorrow and fear and uncertainty. But when the captain, the commander is in the field, leading the troops, going before them, there is boldness and confidence and hope. And it causes us to pray thy kingdom come, Lord Jesus. Lead on, great king. All authority is given to you. Lord, work in me. Take this away from me because you have all authority. After the service this morning, there's a dear man here whose, whose son I've been praying for for years. He has cancer. And he got some very bad news recently. And we just embraced. And I prayed, Lord, you have all authority. You can take away cancer. Please do that. In the name of King Jesus, amen. It's a simple prayer. When the captain is on the white horse, Revelation says he says, he's on a white horse. And the sword is drawn. There's boldness and there's confidence. Are you confident that God wants to use you to work through you? I am a fan of Robin Hood. The, the books, the movies, the various gyrations in the movies, they're all good, especially the one with Kevin Costner. That's my favorite Robin Hood movie. And here's the story. Part of the story is true. There was a king named Richard I or Richard the Lionheart. And Richard the Lionheart left England to lead the third crusade against Saladin and Jerusalem. And he was gone for several years. And so his, in Robin Hood, his younger brother, John, da-da, bad, bad music, uh, proclaimed himself to be king. And he was in cahoots with the sheriff of Nottingham, bad dude. And they would tax the people beyond their abilities and they would forbid them to hunt in the forest, the wild game, and they were just bad people. Robin Hood comes on the scene who loves justice, who loves people, who's an agent of righteousness in many ways. And so Robin Hood and his band of merry men hunt the deer, give the... The, the, the carcasses, whatever, to the poor people that they can eat, and he takes care of them. And Anyway, he's a good guy, a really good guy. And he has to hide in the forest and run from the majority troops by John and the sheriff of Nottingham. And, and uh, they, they kind of, if you remember South Carolina history, kind of like Francis Mary and the Swamp Fox, he kind of hid out in the flatlands. And then as you go through the story, one day Robin and his men are out, and they hear the coming noise of the hoofs of horses as they come into the clearing and there's five men on the horses and they have robes around them to conceal their face and their, what they're wearing and Robin gives the signal and all of a sudden there are 20 drawn taut bows pointed at these five horsemen 
And Robin steps forward and he says very whimsically, do you come as a friend of Sherwood Forest or do you come as a friend of John and the sheriff of Nottingham? And one man says, neither. And he says, who do you? And he points to the man on the horse, the white horse. And he drops his robe. There's a big red cross on his shield. And he said, this is Richard the Lionheart. And Robin falls on his face. He says, long live the king, the rightful king. I mean, and then all of a sudden they start calling people out and they go for it and they just take care of John and exile him. The sheriff of Nottingham is turned into bread pudding. I mean, they just go for it. And it's a great story. I read that and I go, listen, the king is on his horse and he's in the field and he says, follow me. And he wants to use us. All authority is given to King Jesus, the risen Christ, the ascended Christ, who is praying at the right hand of the Father for us today. That's a wild statement. Who's praying for us. His, his spirit has been poured out. We are stewards of grace to go forward in the name of Christ, to impact our neighborhoods and our nations and our campuses and our families with the good news of Jesus because all authority is given to Christ. Now, let me just rehearse. Some of you have heard, I've preached on this guy before. His name is William Carey, one of my heroes, a brief biological, uh, biographical sketch. Uh, William Carey was born in 1764-ish, uh, a very poor family in England, didn't have a chance to go to school past maybe the third grade, but he was a voracious reader and learner, self-taught, brilliant, a brilliant man. He was trained to be a cobbler or fixer of shoes, and there was a young man in the there was a fellow apprentice with him named Peter War, who kept talking to him about Jesus and saying, this is the Christ. He is God in the flesh. And he finally talked Carrie into going to church with him. And they kept going back to church. And William Carey was converted to Jesus. And a few years later, William Carey became a pastor. And he served as a pastor for a few years, but his heart was burdened for the unreached peoples of India. And so at the age of 30-ish, 32, he goes to India with his wife, Dorothy Plackett, a newborn daughter and a son who would die of dysentery in three years. They get to this incredibly difficult place called Calcutta. They're still an incredibly difficult place. And they live there for 40, he lives there for 41 years without ever leaving it, ever, ever, ever leaving it. And he's there. And shortly after he got there, his wife has a nervous breakdown and she has to be restrained every day with leather straps because she was going to either kill somebody or kill herself. It's just an amazing story. She dies after 26 years of marriage. A woman comes to India to be part of the missionary team named Hannah Marshman. Marshman, her husband's Joshua, and she writes the four carry boys. They had four more boys. They are unschooled, uneducated, and untrained, and she raised the boys. Carrie was just trying to survive. He marries again after his wife dies a couple years later, has 13 years of wonderful marriage to a Danish widow who was a very articulate, gracious woman. She dies. Carrie buries a grandson. He buries another child. Um, it's, it's hard. Conflict with other missionaries happened. Difficult, difficult times. He, he was there seven years. Listen, seven years before he had his first convert, William Carey. Uh, so I've got a letter I read frequently that he wrote on his 70th birthday. I'm going to read part of it to you. 
And, and this, listen, church, this shows you how you stay by the stuff and you walk under the authority of Jesus. This letter is worth everything. He says, I am this day 70 years old. He would die at the age of 73. So in those days, a lot of times your birthday was used as a means of incredible thought and where am I? Where am I going? How can I honor the Lord? This day I'm 70 years old, a monument of divine mercy and goodness. Though on a review of my life, I find much, very much for which I ought to be humbled in the dust. My direct and positive sins are innumerable. My negligence in the Lord's work has been great. I have not promoted his cause or sought his glory and honor as I ought. Just stop. This is William Carey. There's nothing, there's no skeleton in his closet. This is just the everydayness of life. He says, my heart is not what it should be. This is William Carey. Again, notwithstanding all of this, I am spared until now. Later in the letter, he says, I trust I am ready to die through the grace of my Lord Jesus and I look forward to the full enjoyment of the society of holy men and angels and the full vision of God forevermore, close quote. A year later, two years before he dies, he writes to his son Jabez and he says, I see that the atoning sacrifice of Christ to be full and complete for me to have been accepted of God and to be the ground of my hope. The bestowment of all spiritual blessings is through the cross. And I go, how do you stay by this stuff year after year after year in a horrible climate with no air condition with a wife that has lost her mind and buried children and a grandson and have another son that walks away from the faith and breaks your heart? How do you do it? You stay by the cross. You glory in Christ. In spite of your failings, which are many, and the inclinations of your heart, which are often very dark, you stay by the cross and you say, I find my acceptance in the work and the power and the passion of Jesus Christ. All authority. What does God want to do in your life, brothers and sisters, as this Christmas approaches, as a new year approaches, what does he want to do in you? And then thirdly, a call to obedience. A verse that can be horrendously misunderstood. Let me read it. Verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said, well, what in the world does that mean? He says, baptism saves you, not the act not the removal of dirt from the body, but, but baptism is a statement of an appeal to God, a solemn pledge to God to have a good conscience and to walk in obedience. That doesn't save you, but it's a sign of your salvation. See, baptism and the Lord's Supper, we say, are the two sacraments of the church or ordinances. A sacrament comes from an old English word that means a solemn vow embraced by a warrior. You pledge your fidelity, your whole life as part of your calling. So every time someone is baptized, it is an appeal, see, appeal to God that I will have a good conscience and I will live for you. 
Every time you take the Lord's Supper, it's an appeal or a statement to the living God that I will solemnly live for you. An appeal is a binding commitment that calls forth obedience. So in the midst of all of this, the glory of Christ, the wonder of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the, the authority of Jesus over everything in the world, Peter says, our response is this, walk in obedience, glory in Christ, be God's people. Baptism, an appeal to God, or good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ out of the dead. A few years ago, I had the privilege of going to a naturalization service of a friend who was becoming a U.S. citizen. And it was a hot day, and I thought, oh, man. But I got there, and I saw all these people, all types of nationalities, and they were so excited. And there was a million about, and then the hour came, and they assembled in front of a stage, and somebody from the government came out and made a few comments, and they were just glued into what he was saying. And then he said, now, you've passed the citizenship test, which is a pretty, pretty tough test, by the way. You've passed the citizenship test. I'm going to ask you to stand now and repeat after me and take this oath of allegiance to the United States of America. Man, I'm, all of a sudden, I'm getting moved. I'm getting kind of teary-eyed. And then I listened as they said this, and I was blown away. Listen, this is what they said. I hereby declare an oath... I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been subject or a citizen that I will support and defend the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by the law, that I will perform non-combatant service in the armed forces of the United States when required by the law, that I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by the law, and that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. So help me God. Wow. See, that is an appeal from a good conscience. So I just wrote this out this morning, just very quickly. We would take something that goes like this. I renounce the devil and all his schemes. By the way, in the early church, when people baptized, they had to renounce the devil and his schemes. So that's where I got that. And I renounce the devil and all his schemes as I love the Lord and turn from sin and repentance. I will support, defend, and live as a called out person, chosen part of a royal priesthood and a holy nation, set apart for the worship of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I will follow King Jesus and serve as an ambassador of grace in seeking to make him known in the neighborhoods and in the nations. 
I will learn of Jesus as I receive the word of God. And I will make it a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So help me, God. Amen. So that, that, that's what this passage is saying. You, you see the absolute glory and goodness and the triumph of Jesus and the authority of Jesus in creation and in your life. And the step is a call to obedience. What is the Lord working in your life to do? To live. Let's pray. Um, Father, we are... Um, when, when you grow up hearing these things, it's so easy for it to become part of the landscape. But I pray the blinding reality of Jesus would absolutely um, capture our hearts afresh this Christmas. I thank you that Isaiah says, for to us a child is born, for to us a son is given. I, I thank you that that we, a child was born. Oh, how thankful I am that the child was the son of God. I'm thankful that the scripture says, continuing, and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his kingdom will never end. So Lord, work in us, work in us. I praise you that all authority rests in Jesus. So would you change us, Holy Spirit? Would you show us how to hit the button to get nourishment from the word as we go through the race of life? Would you show us how to do that? In Jesus' name, amen.